G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Taking things, though, a little deeper in our conversation about Christians and politics over this next hour. Uh, Yes, you'll be able to participate in the conversation shortly. We'll open our talkback line so you can call in and give your own perceptions. Uh, There is a poll that you can respond to, too, when you go on to the Vision Facebook page. So facebook.com forward slash Vision Radio, a poll that you can respond to. So we're going to hold a a whole bunch of issues uh, that we'll sort of move in and out of, I think, today. But as we hold on to uh, the issues for another year, we realize that Uh, We are all a year older than we were last year. You feel a year older than you were last year. And every year that passes, a new and upcoming age group is finding its voice for the first time and asserting its influence for the first time. So what does it look like when a younger generation finds its voice in business, industry, in family, in church, and in the rough and tumble of politics and culture. Well, there's a rising concern that millennials and Generation Z are not seeing biblical truth the way that their parents have done. In the US this year, there's going to be another presidential election, and it's widely accepted that evangelical Christians were the driving force in helping Donald Trump across the line almost four years ago. But the pressures of the culture war and the clever propaganda of spin doctors mean the battle for hearts and minds has not rested, pushing to the limits the positions that younger generations take on the big ethical issues. So a conversation today about whether evangelicalism has shifted to the left. And wonderful to welcome back to 2020, Dr. Camille Magdaly. Joining us from the UK, he leads Teach All Nations. He's a Bible teacher and futurist. He loves to follow global trends and keeping Christian believers uh, at that point of looking always at how they can become future ready. Uh, Camille Magdaly, a special welcome back to 2020. I'm Neil and uh, hello Australia. Camille, we're getting ready for another Understanding the Times tour a little later this year. There are so many trends to follow around the world. But before we get into some of the issues that are happening with the Brexit or with the US election or even some of the perceptions you might have about things by way of Australian Christianity, let me just take you to a recent American magazine article in the magazine Christianity Today. Uh, that took a lot of readers by surprise. And uh, it has some pretty significant things uh, to offer by way of some insights into the way that there might be change happening in the mind, particularly of younger Christians. Uh, What were your perceptions on the article that the Christianity Today magazine published? Well, it took me by surprise. In fact, I lost my breath. I was incredibly shocked, (laughs) to be honest, when I heard about the article, and then I read it. 
But bearing in mind, I have not been a reader of Christianity today for a long time, and I dare say the same for other people too. What I think surprised me is they took a very, very strong and negative stand about the current occupant of the White House in a way that was probably just as extreme as as the far left could have been. While they personally are denying being leftist and say we're still conservative, but there was nothing, absolutely nothing conservative about their article. So you could have the idea that the magazine Christianity Today might have just been throwing, uh, you know, a a spanner into the works or uh, doing something to stir up uh, the evangelical Christian population by having an article like this. But what they were basically saying is uh, that uh, they're anti-Donald Trump, or at least this is the editorial, anti-Donald Trump because of uh, his own... Uh, perhaps uh, value set and uh, and really making a judgment uh, on his leadership according to an evangelical uh, stance uh, from a biblical stance and uh, and judging him very harshly in that and uh, i've got to say that over the years uh, i've been in those conversations too that want to hold the morality of leaders to account but uh, what were your perceptions on on how the whole article came across and what they were trying to do well, first of all, they were wanting Mr. Trump to be removed from office because he is, quote-unquote, immoral. And building the case of immorality, I was rather, to be honest, incredulous, because they're really, first of all, hearkening to behavior that <laughs> hasn't been muted for like a decade. You know, we've had presidents with hanky-panky in the White House. That has not been the case here. But they also basically said he was guilty of everything the Democratic Party said he is vis-a-vis Ukraine, totally guilty, so he should be removed for that, too. And they even said his hiring practices were immoral, even though the fact is he's had the most Christian administration, starting with the vice president downward. So I was at a loss to think, what is going on here? And I, to be honest, the best way to describe it is the never-Trumper mindset. And the never-Trumper mindset is basically it doesn't matter what Donald Trump does. Even if he were to raise the dead, they would be totally against him. And that's how the article really could be best described. As Christians, though, Camille, we tend to take sides like everyone does. But we, what we ought to do, and what I often encourage on this program, uh, is the idea of being above the political fray so that you can apply your Christian understanding, your Christian worldview, uh, to the policies of both sides. Because oftentimes, when you're voting uh, for one side or the other, neither side is perfect, and somehow or other you have to be able to hold both sides to account. Uh, is this, you think, what the article might have been trying to do? Or is this something that you think that, as Christians, we ought to be trying to do ourselves? Well, I think as Christians, we should try to be above the fray. We can and should deal with issues. We should, when dealing with people, particularly political leaders and the like, we should be fair-minded. And, you know, let's budget into the equation people's humanity, too. Nobody is perfect. I think so. I, but the interesting thing is the editorial came from an editor, Mr. Mark Galley, who was on his way to retiring within just days. It's like his parting shot. 
and he was very strong about it and not penitent whatsoever. He knew it would cause a stir, and he was not disappointed. When I read the article, I said, there will be a backlash. And boy, it happened quickly. 200 evangelical leaders repudiated the article, but Christianity Today and their CEO stood fast. They were holding on to their guns that Trump must go because he is immoral. Let's talk ages of people here and uh, what some might even term a new evangelicalism because as we all grow, as I mentioned in our introduction today, as we all grow a year older, there's another generation that's coming to the fore and they're bringing their own political, moral, uh, ethical uh, aspirations into the political debate. Uh, You've got millennials who are aged between basically 25 and 40 years of age and you've got Generation Z. Basically, we'll call them the under-25s. And there has typically, and uh, statistics would show us, a move away from those sorts of evangelical roots in a younger generation. What are your thoughts for the changes that are either upon us or are coming upon us as a Christian people uh, when it comes to the way that we might hold our political views? Uh, What are your thoughts here, Camille? Well, first of all... There is truisms that millennials tend to go more to the left, but the younger ones, the Generation Z, are actually <laughs> going a little more to the right. But that's, not, that's part of the concern. But I'm, what I'm concerned about is that at any age level, there is a drift away from what I would call a solid, sound, biblical stance. Remember, as you rightly said, I'm a Bible teacher, and that's primarily what I do, and I'm discerning very much a biblical ignorance that is just appalling. And as even among leadership, which whenever, whenever you depart from the clear teaching of God's Word, you will be in error. You don't have to be a millennial for that, Neil. <laughs> There's people older than us that are drifting uh, away. Part of it is because of a desire to be relevant, to be in touch with where the community's at so that we sound like we know what we're talking about and we we hear what they're saying. But we must never sacrifice biblical orthodoxy for the idol of relevance. We must always stay relevant to God or else we're useless to everybody else. Camille, let me ask you about some definitions here, because I know that there'll be some who are listening in thinking, uh, somehow or other, I don't want this to go over my head, I want to really hear what Camille's got to say. When we talk about, and good to be able to talk about who millennials are, who Generation Z are, and uh, great clarity that you've just brought to those age groups, but there's also this idea of within Christianity and the whole spectrum of who's there. Uh, We're talking evangelicals, uh, and uh, sometimes you might contrast that with uh, Catholics or people who might be liberal in the way that they uh, interpret the Bible. Um, When you say evangelicals, uh, give us your insights as to how we might define what an evangelical looks like. Well, in its classic form, and I'm talking classic, I'm not talking about the modern, the classic form. Evangelicalism was very simple and very wonderful. It's a high view of Scripture that Bible is the highest and sole source of authority in faith and practice. With that mindset came the second part of the imperative to preach the gospel 
and to do mission. Now, that's, to me, very simple. And the classic evangelical of all modern time would be the late Billy Graham. He was exactly that mold. When Billy Graham would make the statement, the Bible says, it was tantamount to saying, God says. That's the, shall we say, the glory of evangelicalism. But there has been a drift, and it's been going on for a long time, where now you will get so-called evangelicals who don't even quote the Bible, even though they're writing for Christians on biblical topics or on Christian topics or on current topics, hardly even refer to the Bible. And that in itself is a worry, because we will be in error if we don't know the Scriptures or the power of God, says Jesus. Let me ask you about this definition of evangelical and uh, just deepen this a little because uh, you're, as listeners can hear, uh, American by birth, uh, so you've got a great grip on the American culture. Uh, and of course, you're in the UK, we're talking to you that, and that's your base for the moment. And you've spent 25 years living here in Australia, so really great to be able to get your perceptions right across uh, these nations. But when we talk about evangelicalism, uh, there is a sense, and just let me just illustrate this from what I uh, interpret from the American culture, that even people who are Catholic in an American culture are oftentimes very evangelical in the way that they understand their faith. So evangelicalism doesn't necessarily have just solid borders on denominations here. Give us some insights here, Camille, about what evangelicalism can do as it starts to shape our political identity and as, you know, grounded in our faith. Well, evangelicalism, because it's been very strong in the United States, has been a voting block. Billy Graham became the pastor to, like, I can't remember, 11 U.S. presidents. Now, of course, there was a mutual back-scratching, and I mean no disrespect to Billy Graham, but the point is the presidents like to be chummy with Billy Graham, have a photo with Billy Graham, because, after all, he brings in crowds, and they want the evangelical vote. But what is interesting is the one that got the highest amount of evangelical votes is the one that never had the photo of Billy Graham, and that's Donald Trump. Because by the time Trump was running for president in 2016, Billy Graham was basically on his way out. He wasn't making public appearances or anything. He knew Trump personally. In fact, apparently we now learned out of this Christianity Today incident that Billy Graham voted for Trump, which was amazing because Billy Graham was most of his life a registered Democrat. But uh, anyway, the point being that they're a very, very strong bloc. But I have to say now, it's happening in Australia. And you just had Martin Isles from Australian Christian Lobby on the uh, air. It's happening in Australia. When you think that, think that someone like Julia Gillard, an avowed atheist, would be trying to court evangelical votes or Christian votes, I never thought I would see such a thing. So it's, it's happened in Australia as well, and I believe that's a good thing. But the, I think how we approach it is like what ACL and others are doing. We're not necessarily uh, endorsing candidates per se, but we're endorsing issues that are relevant to our faith and relevant to our family. I don't think you have to be, quote-unquote, politicized when you're dealing with those issues. That is the core of who we are. Our faith and our family is paramount, and we shouldn't be shy to speak up for it 
from a biblical point of view. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Dr. Camille Magdaly, our guest, who leads Teach All Nations, tan.org.au. He's on the line live from the UK. And if you know anything about time zones, uh, it's the middle of the night. Camille, thank you so much for staying up in the middle of the night to talk to us. Pleasure, Neil. Camille, let's talk about the UK for a few moments because uh, very significant over the weekend, Brexit has come into force. Uh, What are your thoughts for uh, next steps forward from here for uh, the British people? Well, the next step forward is they're going to be back at the negotiating table. They want to have, in fact, what the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson succeeded to pass gives an 11-month transition period. So at the moment, it's almost like we never left the EU, but they will negotiate, most importantly, trade between EU and Britain, but also uh, deal with issues like immigration and security. Now, they say you can't have a trade agreement, free trade agreement, in just 11 months. It's taken years to cobble up this one or that one. But Boris Johnson, he's a very sunny and optimistic disposition. He says, it will be done and I won't be asking for an extension. And already they're uh, sharpening their knives for starting out tough on both sides. But it is, uh, as I have stressed on this program before, Neil, the biggest event in Britain since the end of the Second World War. It's a divorce from a marriage of 47 years with the EU and it's as if Britain had gained its independence again. It is that kind of a feeling. And so, remember, there was an election only in December here in the United Kingdom, and it gave Boris Johnson, despite the polls, that it would be neck and neck and a hung parliament. He got a resounding majority, which basically was the British people's way of saying, we're tired of this mucking around, give us the Brexit. In fact, that was his campaign slogan, get Brexit done. Well, now the negotiations in earnest about trade agreements, not just with the EU, but with Australia, with the United States, are at hand. And one of the things that's important that I think Aussies need to hear is that when Britain entered the EU, it was as if unwittingly it was turning its back on the family, meaning the Commonwealth, and having to focus on the EU and on Europe, which uh, I understand the feeling. Why do Aussies have to get in a long immigration queue to get their six-month visa while EU people had nothing to do with Britain can just waltz in as if they were British citizens? Well, we know that will begin to change back in Australia's favor. In fact, now we can go in the (laughs) the British line at Heathrow Immigration. But they will reconnect with the Commonwealth, I think, in a very profound way, and that's positive for everyone. The election late last year, Camille, let's see if we can tie in this part of our conversation, even as we're reflecting on Brexit and the changes that will come. And as you say, they'll be introduced over a period of time. And uh, at the moment, things probably don't feel a whole lot different, but they might start to feel different over the next 11 months or so. But uh, there was an election late last year. Uh, The Christian public in the UK, a little bit different to what we think of in Australia. 
Australia and different to the sort of uh, atmosphere you might think of religiously in the United States. Uh, was there a, a an effect, do you think, uh, with the Brexit vote and then, of course, uh, with the affirmation of the Brexit to happen with the election last year from a Christian dynamic? What were your thoughts on, on how Christians might have been influential in things that have been happening in the UK? Well, during the last Understanding the Times tour, which was in August, September, and October of 2019, I was actually saying in the meetings, I believe Brexit will happen, even though there was a lot of resistance and Brexit blocking in the Parliament. I said, but it will happen for one reason, and that is because there's a whole host of Christians in and out of the UK that are praying for the Brexit. And that's exactly what's happened. I, so I think the Christian influence, people keep thinking that the Christians have practically become extinct in the UK because of the advance of other agendas and stuff. But no, there's still Christians here, believe me. And, and they do know how to pray. And I've seen it with my own eyes. They pray very effectively. And that's how it worked. It may not have been so overt in the public way, but I'm telling you, in the prayer means, it's like very electric. So yes, they were influential, but it was in the prayer closet more than anywhere else. And with such a substantial Christian heritage in the UK and the way that it has in fact shaped, I'm talking about the Christian faith, has shaped the people in the UK, uh, there was a movement, wasn't there, uh, aligning with the Europeans uh, that was taking away some of their own self-determination and the values that might have shaped the nation as uh, a Christian nation were being diminished. Uh, a quick thought on that, Camille. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There was a very strong drift, thanks to the EU, to, in a sense, decouple Europe from its Christian heritage. Remember, they tried back in 2005 to have a constitution for Europe that wouldn't even mention Christianity as having anything to do with European identity. Neil, that is the most ludicrous thing I can imagine. Every village and town across this continent has a, has a church. How can you say Christianity had nothing to do with it? Britain was a little more resilient against such a trend, but it, you know, it was succumbing as well. And in a sense, this anti-Christian bias, implicit in the humanists and secularists that were running the EU, it was a, it was a battle, all right. But it's a battle, I believe, at least in Britain, that's being won. There's also a Facebook poll that's going asking, has evangelicalism moved to the left? And I can tell you 67% of respondents to that poll say, yes, evangelicalism has moved to the left. 33 are saying no. But let me ask you here, Camille Majdali, about evangelicals. Are we seeing potentially the emergence of what we might even frame, and I've not been hearing this being talked about under this terminology, the idea of a new evangelicalism? Is there an old guard and is there a new guard? Uh, what are your thoughts for uh, the change that's happening? Well, this is my understanding at present, and it is subject to revision. I think that evangelicalism, there is still the, shall we call it, the faithful core. They stay true to what they believe as far as biblical absolutes 
and these are unchanging, and you can't actually even be saved unless you believe in these absolutes. But there is a part of it, at least, a wing of the evangelical movement that is drifting to the left, both politically and even theologically. And that was well illustrated by the Christianity Today editorial that Donald Trump should be removed for immorality, and and actually using the Ten Commandments as the uh, the guide. And of course, we believe in the Ten Commandments, but we also know nobody keeps the Ten Commandments in their own strength. So yes, there is this, shall we say, it's not the whole movement, but it's parts within the movement, and, and some of them may even be influential, that are drifting to the left, even if they deny they're doing precisely that. Let's talk about biblical literacy and how that might shape the uh, aspirations that some Christians might have uh, with their own political stance, uh, shapes the way that they think ethically about the big issues that are facing nations around the world. Um, When we talk biblical literacy and we think of the old guard as having a good grip on biblical literacy, but that may not necessarily be the case, and you mentioned millennials taking that drift to the left, and then I'll just bring you back, too, to something you mentioned in our first part of our conversation, where you thought that Generation Z may actually be more conservative than a lot of people think. So what role does biblical literacy have in the way that perceptions might be developing around people's political ideas? Well, biblical literacy will, in my estimation, lead you down a certain track. It's like you can't go any other way. And I know it sounds really absolute and straightjacketed, but it's a fact. If you have biblical literacy, you'll have a high view of things like marriage, of family, of, shall we say, life issues, pro-life issues. You will have a high issue on the uh, things like work and the sacredness of work. We do believe in working where we can, where possible, of course, and, and things of that sort. It's just very difficult to, to go anywhere else. Uh, there may be some wiggle room and some some issues, like should Australia be a republic or something, but on certain key moral and ethical issues, you, you have no choice when you are biblically literate with the high view of Scripture, I should say. And that is a very important point, high view of Scripture. A lot of people will say, I mean, evangelicals or in evangelical churches, yeah, I believe in the Bible. But that doesn't necessarily mean they know the Bible. It doesn't necessarily mean they walk according to its precepts. They just happen to be in a church that affirms these things, but that doesn't mean they personally have imbibed them. So to me, the biblical literacy and how you will view the world go hand in hand. And uh, I'm not going to presume to speak for anybody but myself, but I do know that that is a, a correct perception. We will be colored how we view the world by how we view the Bible, too. And would you say, Camille, that the Ten Commandments is a good place to start if you're talking about ethics, if you're talking about in some ways aspiring to become biblically literate, uh, to have a grip on what it is to be a Christian, to be able to make that personal application to not only your own life issues, but uh, to make that application to what you might be seeing uh, even on national level issues. Uh, The Ten Commandments, uh, I see it as pretty uh, high priority, but what are your thoughts? 
Well, I think the Ten Commandments are uh, incredibly, incredibly important, and we should learn them. uh, That would be a good litmus test, Neil. Ask people, the average Christian, uh, tell me how many of the commandments do you know? And unfortunately, and I don't mean to be rude, you might be in for a shock. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That the average person can quote. But we should view the Ten Commandments, I hasten to add, from a New Testament point of view not an Old Testament point of view. The New Testament point of view (laughs) gives us the correct hermeneutic. It is God's standard. But remember, Jesus goes even further, deeper, and higher than what uh, is explicitly written in Moses. You know, like, for example, if you, uh, you may not have committed adultery, literally, but if you've lusted in your heart, then you've committed adultery. That's a New Testament view. And, of course, only Jesus Christ and the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God hidden in our hearts can set us free from the lust that keeps us bound to the things of the world and is in violation of the commandment. Let me take you to another dimension here, Camille, because for a lot of Christians, when we think about faith, we're separating that from even the idea of having a political thought or political activity, and yet When people hear you and I talk, we're often talking about Christians and politics, uh, the way that our values overflow even into the national issues that a nation faces. Uh, For people who might be thinking about, uh, you know, biblical literacy and the way people might move to the left or to the right, uh, this idea of actually letting your values dictate how you might feel politically, what are your thoughts here? Well, I'm not sure how you can separate your your values from how you feel politically. I think they would uh, go hand in hand. But remember again, we we approach this. You and I, for example, we approach it from an issues value position, not necessarily partisan politicking or political endorsements of this political party or this candidate, you know, and that kind of thing. I'm very very uh, careful on that, even if I strongly support a particular candidate, I don't go as far as to tell people, vote for this person or don't vote for that one. But I have no problem talking about issues that affect us as a church or affect us as a family or affect us as a nation. That part is fair game and should be encouraged that we talk about these things. Because frankly, if the church won't talk about them, let me tell you, the world will more than happy fill that void in our place. Isn't it one of the criticisms that we might have drawn attention to ahead of elections of recent years? This idea that, of course, there is a Christian position on a lot of these different issues that a nation might face, but churches reluctant to actually put forward a biblical foundation, a theological perspective on those issues for the fear that they might have been in some ways, telling people how to vote. Uh, Somehow or other, the church has to be above the political partisanship and actually talk about these things theologically. Uh, What are your thoughts for for how we approach things by way of the local church? I think the local church and the church in general needs to have a conversation with the community. I believe the community is looking for leadership, sound moral leadership. Even It's interesting. Think of the Christian school phenomena in Australia or elsewhere. It's interesting how many non-Christian families want to put their family, kids in a Christian school. Why? 
because the academic achievement tends to be higher in, in general, and also they like the values that that Christian school is teaching. And I would say that extends into society itself. They may not practice the values we espouse, but many people respect them anyway. They know it's common sense. They know it's right. They know we're all better off when we have these views of morality and family and and godliness. They're expecting the Church to speak. Now, part of the hesitancy of speaking out is because there's a culture war, and it's nasty, and people degenerate into puerile name-calling and hissy fits and what have you. But, you know, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit makes us bold (laughs) and fearless. And we're not doing this out of hatred or bigotry. We're doing it because we care, we love. We want to see the salt and light come into our society. Even It doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going to become a Christian, but at least we will be better off than what we are now. So it's like a prophetic voice, Neil. And I believe we'd be surprised how many people in the community, unchurched as all get out, but they will respect, if not resonate, with the high standards we're espousing, because ultimately they're God's standards that, as per his holy word. And ultimately, and so often, uh, representing good common sense for the well-being of a society. Let's take another call. Let's hear from Richard, who is in Brisbane. Hello, Richard. Welcome along. G'day. Hey, how are you going? Good, Richard. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I just want to ask you a question. Um, like I went to a Christian private school growing up, Christian family and all that, but my, my wife, she's a Christian home, but she grew up, uh, she went to a state school, and I... And I really um, was just want to ask you a question about how um, society in general, we've got the, the, with the secular worldview of evolution and all that, how that actually affects um, the liberal Christian thinking. Because I know, like, my dad believes in theistic evolution, but, you know, there are all these gaps, and it, it takes out, you know, you know, it takes away from the Bible. And I'm just looking to go, when, when the foundation of the Bible is attacked, does that, does that leave... To more of an openness to to this liberal ideas of the Christians, and now we're getting washed out of it. You know, we're, we're removed from that core and our conservative values. Richard, good thought in there. Uh, the roots which you have in your education are going to shape you into your future. That's the sort of thing you're talking about. And even down yeah. to this idea of evolution, uh, theistic evolution, which is like a crossover between creation and evolution, and people like to take different positions there. Camille, uh, your thoughts for Richard on, on the education that he's talking about? Well, I couldn't agree more with Richard. The fact is, when you teach things like evolution, and I think we ought to teach them, but not necessarily teach them (laughs) the way the world does. Uh, And we need to teach that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, absolutely right. Genesis is the foundational book of the Bible. And if you undermine the foundational book, you're, you're basically undermining the whole Bible. It's like building a skyscraper and having poor foundations. The first little tremor will cause the whole thing to fall down. So, yes, every, every school has a worldview, and we will be the products of that worldview. And let me put it this way, even with, without getting the whole depth of the creation-evolution debate, just let's remember this, Jesus Christ himself endorsed creation. That alone 
should be enough for the fervent believer. He endorsed it. He ought to know what he's talking about. He rose from the dead. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. But we don't have to just go, you know, quote-unquote, blind faith. There are solid things we can also affirm, that God's handprints are all over the created order. But yes, absolutely right with Richard. If you learn that God created the heavens and earth, we are made in God's image, we will live accordingly. But if we're taught contrary to that, we're going to have a whole different sort of behavior. Richard from Brisbane, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation today. Let's hear from Lawrence in Perth, WA. Hi, Lawrence. Welcome. Hello, thank you. I'd just like to ask about the left influences leaning on the church, such as feminism and the LGBTI adherents. They say the church needs to catch up with modern society, but what does Camille think? Camille, your thoughts on uh, LGBT and uh, feminism, the left influences on church? I think that we do need to uh, look at these issues seriously because they are big issues, and we need to look at them wisely and compassionately. But at the same time, there probably will, at some point, maybe sooner than later, <laughs> there will be a clash of worldviews coming to this. But I do believe that we can, in a sense, stay above the fray. We do need to reach out to people. Remember, there's people, you know, feminists and LGBT that are actually attending churches. There are people among them that would claim to be Christian, and I mean biblical Christian, it's it's not that unheard of, and so we we do need to address it wisely, graciously, but we need to stick to our biblical standard. But in sticking to the biblical standard, that doesn't mean the absence of love of, of anything. It should be overflowing with love. So, yeah, we do need to address it, not avoid it, but also recognize that we don't have to sacrifice biblical standards in order to reach out to all members of the community, including feminists and LGBT. Lawrence from Perth, thank you so much for your call. And uh, we won't be able to... Well, we've still got time for another call or two if uh, if you wanted to call in. Let me just ask you, Camille, because we've been running this poll and inviting people to uh, be part of that poll on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Has evangelicalism moved to the left? And uh, the latest on that poll, 68% saying, yes, there is a move to the left. 32% saying, no, there's not. Uh, and Camille, any thoughts on, on the way those numbers, I mean, you know, this is for people who have responded uh, for this and part of our conversation, no doubt. Uh, but what are your thoughts for those sorts of numbers, people agreeing that, yes, there is a move to the left? Uh, well, I think it, it's a reflective in part of what kind of church you may be attending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if you're attending a, a conservative church, I mean biblically conservative, then you may not see it as a, as a drift. But if you're seeing the, the bigger church scene, there is definitely that pull. And it it is it is happening, but it doesn't necessarily mean everybody in evangelicalism is going that way. I just think it's great that people even sense that this is happening. It means they're aware beyond their own local church of what may be happening in the church at large. And to me, when you understand a situation, you're halfway towards a solution. 
uh, if, if the drift to the left were healthy, then let's welcome it. But if it's not healthy, and if it's taking us to territory that would uh, get us in trouble with the Lord, then that's where the prophetic voice says, okay, enough is enough. Come back home. Come back to the Bible. Come back to the Holy Spirit. Come back to the uh, precepts of, of God's Word, which is what revival is. It's, it's coming back and coming alive again to the things of God. Most of us would recognize that Christians will hold certain values. And when we talk politics, when we talk elections, uh, that yes, that can be the difference in get what gets one uh, candidate across the line ahead of another. Uh, we should take that seriously, Camille, or uh, how do you think, because we're actually Christians not so that we can be political, but it's really like an overflow or an out an outpouring of what happens in our lives because of the influence that we have when it comes to politics. What are your thoughts just for, for the way that uh, politics might govern our thinking or does does faith govern our thinking and there's a political outworking? It's the latter, Neil. Just remember, we are called in Matthew 5 to be salt of the earth and light of the world. Salt is not meant to be staying in the salt shaker. It's meant to be shaken and spread abroad across the society, bringing flavor and stemming corruption. That's what we're meant to be doing. We, we have to, by the way, it's not that we want to be political. We are called to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We have to know something about what's going on among the nations if we're going to be effective in the Great Commission. That's been my theme for many years, and it's slowly getting traction now. <laughs> but yes, we, are, we want to fulfill the Great Commission, but in fulfilling the Great Commission, we also need to, uh, to be informed and where necessary, speak out on the things that affect faith and family. It's, it's, it's to be expected from us, and I know that we'll have a better reception to these things than we expect. Oh, yeah, there'll be resistance, too. That comes with the territory. But, you know, that's also, even in the resistance, we get stronger. It's just like weight training. The heavier the weight, if you keep persevering, the stronger you become. So we don't despise that there are controversies and that it will be perhaps a rocky road through the year ahead, no matter whether you are in Australia or where you are at this present time, Camille, in the UK or for what's coming in the United States. It'll be a big year for all of these things. And as you say, it's like weight training and we don't despise there's a challenge because that's actually doing good things. Look, we have run out of time, but I want to take one last call only because it's uh, my friend Graham McLennan from Orange in New South Wales who was who was. <laughs> Uh, guest last week on the radio talking about uh, uh, National uh, Christian Heritage Sunday. But, uh, Graham McLennan, you've got a quick contribution to our conversation today. Yeah, it's more, it's more a comment than a, uh, a question, but I, I'd like to hear what he has to say about it. But, for instance, the National Party is now so progressive on issues like homosexuality and so on, um, but many of them are no longer farmers. They're university educated, which makes me wonder why... Um, they're in, uh, they're leading now the National Party, but 90% of academics are left-wing, apparently, and uh, many cultural Marxists. I'm just wondering, um, we need to change our university system, and many of those cultural Marxists and lefties in the universities are Christians, would you believe? So that's why I think we need to exercise real caution on having a Christian university, because many of them will be left-wing, and it'll just be a continuation of the problem. But 
Uh, I just like uh, your comments on that, but just to say also in today's news, uh, the head of the Greens in the Senate has resigned. Head of the Greens, that's Dean Natale. Right. Okay. Okay, so there's some uh, some big things happening, and uh, big things happening in the National Party again today too. Uh, all sorts of things happening, even while we're speaking, and it does need to be a very quick response. But Camille, uh, your thoughts for the things Graham is sharing? Uh, I agree with what Graham is sharing, and I've seen that with the National Party too. Everything he says, I I've agreed with. There is a trend to the left. There is a heavy dose of progressivism in the school system, in the university system. But I do believe that Christians can still make a difference. And I even think that if they have to go to a secular university, they don't have to wilt and die spiritually. You can actually thrive in a contrary atmosphere. I did. That was my experience 100%. But... uh, as I said earlier, when you understand a situation, you're halfway towards the solution. Now that we know what the lie of the land is, we can make wise decisions, like the sons of Issachar. That's what Understanding the Times is about, the tour, helping people to know what's going on so they can know what they need to do. Well, thank you so much, Graham McLennan, for your call. And we do have to tie things up here, Camille. Uh, we know you're making a plan already for another Understanding the Times tour later this year, August, September. And no doubt you'll be taking bookings and uh, there'll be lots of churches inviting you back. Some that might not be able to have you back will create an opportunity for someone else uh, to perhaps book that time. So I'll encourage listeners, you can be in touch with Dr. Camille Magdaly tan.org.au tan stands for teach all nations tan.org.au you can also subscribe to camille's newsletter Uh, it keeps you up to date and with insights into what's happening with these big issues as they continue to unfold around the world dr camille magdaly wonderful pleasure having you on once again and i want to thank you so much for staying up late and being part of 2020 today My pleasure, Neil, and God bless Australia. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.